Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. So, we are back with another Thoughtful Thursday where we give you our unfiltered, unbridled opinion on our BCP um, members' questions where they prod and uh, probe our very, you know, shallow psyches. (laughs) Yeah, I always do love a good Thoughtful Thursday because it does get my my cerebral spinal fluid juices flowing, trying to get the old brain cells engaged with some rather interesting and challenging questions that we normally get asked by our BCPs. And the other reason I like Thoughtful Thursdays is because I don't have to prepare any PowerPoint slides either for it as well. So that's <laughs> another great another great reason for enjoying Thoughtful Thursdays. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like the word, you, what did you, you, you said cerebral. I like that. But there are two ways of saying that that actually are both allowed. So you can have cerebral or cerebral. Um, and you've got... I think for- cerebral sounds more intelligent. I would say cerebral, but I I remember having a very in-depth argument with someone about this, and I went away and researched it and found out actually both are correct. And that's a bit like uh, cervical and cervical as well. Yes, yes, although I always thought cervical was the more correct term. Well, you'd speak to an American, they'll disagree with you, mate, because they, okay. they call it cervical. And yeah. uh, no, normally that neck, a cervical neck, is um, anatomically located a little bit lower down in yes. my uh, yes, exactly. understanding. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know. I'm a married man. I wouldn't know. But, um, you know, but but yes, exactly. So there we go. The language. ambiguous world of language. Diverts and uh, changes and gets twisted and contorted. And I just struggle bloody with the basics, let alone all this complicated stuff. So, yeah. I, we don't actually know what cerebral or cerebral actually means. It just sounds good. I just struggle with pronunciations as well. Yeah, fair play. Fair play. Um, right, so let's kick off. We've got, I'm going to do this actually in order of how they've uh, come to us. And we're going to start at the top there. A question from uh, our friend John Ware, um, all the way in uh, the US, I think in the south of the US. I was just about to say, I'm trying to, I'm trying to rack my brains to know where John is located. Um, well, I'm I, gonna, I, can't... I know. I think I know. I think John is in Louisiana. Right. Okay. That's deep south, that, isn't it? Yeah. I've been there to teach a course many, well, a few years ago. I bet, they loved your, I bet they loved your uh, lily white ass down in Louisiana. Yeah. Let's just say there was lots of trucks, lots of mullets, and quite a lot of camouflage. So you, you didn't fit in too well then? <laughs> no, I was just like, <laughs> who's this like little English dude? I, I, I did stick out just like a sore thumb. Um, and so, uh, great, um, John says his question is inspired by Greg Lehman, who do, does love to ask some uh, deep and searching questions. And he says, how important is it really to keep up with research? Seems like much of the research is either crap 
or it's just a rehash of concepts that have no real impact on practice? Yeah, it is a good question, and I can see why Greg's asked it, because he does like to do this. He likes to be a bit contrarian and go against the grain. So I can understand what he's saying, um, but I do think it is important for clinicians to know the basics, um, to, to, and that, that does require, to a certain extent, keeping up with some research. But there's also that other argument that a lot of the research isn't changing or telling us anything new. So there is a lot of time wasted of reading research. Yeah. And then I think the question is, is, you know, is, is what you're classing as research? Uh, that, that, you know, what is it you're staying up to date with? Is it published journals? Is it Greg's blogs? Is it <laughs> is it stuff on social media? You know, where where is the best place to get your information from? And is it always a journal? Is it always the best, re most reliable, trustworthy source? And uh, we used to think that, but I think now in this day and age with publication, predatory journals, biases, fraud that goes on, it, it can be a bit of a, what's the word, a minefield of trying to um, find good research that may help change our views and opinions on things or advance things further forward. So I think that is the bigger problem and i think that's probably the, the question is how how not rather to stay up to date but how can i how can i find good research that i do need to read yeah i mean i, I think I, I think greg you know is probably kind of pointing out that we do have a lot of it seems similar research research that's been um you, you know just rehashing the same shit we've already done good though because we have got also the other argument that we don't have reproduction studies often replication um, yeah replication and reproduction because I, I do think that that is the other issue you know that we uh we do need more studies of the same thing i know it is boring um but i think there is a benefit for that as well but yeah it they gets to a point where the saturation is so like we've had 23 studies on whether using Upper traps dry needling significantly helps people improve quicker, faster, better than not doing dry needling. And I think we can say the evidence says it doesn't have that much superiority. So I think there is a time where we can say we don't need a 24th randomized controlled trial for dry needling into the upper traps. Yeah, but I think this is the fundamental question here is who is research for? I think we have this idea that research is here to guide us to make better clinical decisions and change the face of practice. And I actually think most research is done because we have a bunch of students and a bunch of faculty that measure their success or measure their worth via publishing papers. Um, and I would argue, actually, that, you know, there is a point of um the 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 whole world of research isn't designed to to change the clinical world it's designed to keep the world of publishing and keep the academic world flowing um Ooh. you know yeah but, but, but do you know who said that to me steve camper steve said to me specifically research is not really for clinicians per se he said it's designed for it's designed for researchers to do research and sometimes that means that it's not going to be groundbreaking. No, I get that. I, it's certainly not user-friendly, um, you know, unless you've had, you know, a lot of training and teaching in how to 
uh, read statistics, confidence intervals, and all that sort of thing. And you got the right mindset. You know, you got a very analytical mindset. You know, reading research papers certainly isn't for everybody. I to- totally understand that argument, and I also understand the argument. It is a business. You know, there is huge business incentives, profit, you know, margins for journals and companies. But not, not just the journals, also academia itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. You know, people can make careers and millions of pounds in certain areas and stuff Funding. like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I still think, you know, the fundamental point of research is to answer questions. And, you know, I don't, as much as there is a business behind that, I still think, People are doing research because they do want to try and answer questions. Sometimes it's just that there's a lot of shitty incentives that makes them ask rather shitty questions yeah, that they don't the, actually. The, but, but I suppose the point is who are they are? What are the what is influencing the questions that are being asked? Do you well, see yeah, what there's, there's the biases and the and the you know the influences of you know outside factors obviously driving why people would do research you know funding being the big one you know that's a massive problem in musculoskeletal health because it often doesn't get very well funded certain things because it's considered to be you know low risk low priority have small effect so you know the funding the grants are often not there to get those research trials done so they're often not done where the funding is is where you know companies are going to make a lot of money out of certain things if it's been proven to be effective and shows good effects. So that's, yeah, absolutely where things tend to get directed, time, energy, and effort-wise. But I, I I understand the point that, as I say, that I don't can't say that we can't think that research isn't trying to help us understand things more because it is. It's asking questions. It's just the fact that these questions are often perhaps not well framed the studies are not well designed and there's as I said, various reasons for that but i still think you know at the core we need reason because what's the option what's the other alternative we go back to just saying we're going to do this because i have always done this and empirical well, evidence yeah, and I, I just think we need to understand what drives research and sometimes it isn't you know, the, the the thought process maybe isn't about changing clinical practice always. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I, I get that. But, you know, I do think that it's still trying to decide is doing this the best thing to do or not? Or is doing this over this better for this type of person? You know, that that's the fundamental reason that a lot yeah. of randomised control trials are done. Yeah, they're just not but, done very well, and they're not powered well enough, and they're not designed with confounding variables, and not taken into consideration, and all this sort of stuff. So there's all these limitations. But as bad and, and as problematic as that is, what's the alternative? The alternative is even fucking worse. If we don't have research and we go back to just saying, "Well, Mr. Smith says this is the best thing to do." Well, we're going to carry on doing what Mr. Smith says. That's a fucking. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. No. 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 Absolutely. I, I don't think that was. You know. I. I don't think I would advocate for that. Um. I, I think that's quite a binary position of research or no research. But I can understand why. Um. People might say that a lot of what comes out isn't groundbreaking and isn't that helpful and doesn't change that much. And I think part of that is because you know I, maybe it's not that's not exactly what's trying to be done 
No, but the other thing that we also got to consider is of the curse of knowledge. It's very easy for Greg to say that there's nothing new that's changing my mind because he's had 20 odd years of experience of reading fucking two or three journals every week. And he's got an awesome amount of understanding and knowledge. And so, you know, he is well aware of things perhaps not changing in the last 10 years or so because he has read a lot of research, but not mm. everybody knows that. I think people have to, they have to be able to get there on their own. They have to be able to realize there's a point of, okay, I have understood a lot of things. I've read a lot of stuff. I've got a broad understanding of the evidence base. I'm not seeing much shift. I'm seeing the same things coming out. And that takes time and experience. So I think yeah. Greg is a little bit guilty of the curse of knowledge, as we all are. It seems I, that we get bored, we get frustrated. And the other thing, he's just a fucking curmudgeon as well. So he's a bloody grown <laughs> Look, I, you know him better than I do, so I, I, I can't judge on that. I uh, love him to death, but fuck me, yeah, he's uh, he's a grump. I thought I was a grumpy git, but he's, he takes it to another level sometimes. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I think, though, but I think another point here might be, you know, based on what you just said, is it better then to keep up to date with research or is it good to know the classic papers from the last 10 years maybe that have actually changed things? Yeah, there are, you know, that, that's why you go to university. Maybe that's another when you, when you, yeah, when you're starting out, you go, you go and get taught stuff. You don't actually go and learn stuff for yourself. You get, you get directed. These are the key fundamental principles. And that's based on people that have had 20 or 30 years experience understanding what these key principles are and they teach them to people and then they hopefully are teaching them skills to say well these are the key fundamentals but you now need to know to see whether they are still correct and accurate and up to date and that's yeah. that process of continued knowledge assimilation so they shouldn't only just be teaching the key principles but also critical thinking how to go and look at it how to go and read research how to evaluate it as good or bad or indifferent you know, it's a, it, it, it's a process. I don't yeah. think we can say that you, you can just stop reading research because the same things are coming out all the time. I, I don't think that's a good position to be in. And I'm sure but, Greg hasn't said it. I haven't read his blog, by the way. I have to put that out there. but Because I know he did a blog about why you don't need to keep up to research. So, so could we say then, you know, you probably do have to keep up with research to some degree. That's it. That's it. It's it's. Yeah. You have to read ten times a day. Yeah, I think it takes time to build up the knowledge of a sort of core base, and then you know you are tweaking and you know adding and removing bits of it. It's like it's like a sculpture. <laughs> knowledge oh, is like hell. knowledge <laughs> is like a sculpture. You've got a big lump of stone presented in front of you. There's your core skills, and then you're just chipping away at it. You know, adding bits, removing bits to start to you know turn it into something that is more individual unique for you because everybody's knowledge is different and individual as well yeah yeah i mean it's a very opinion-based question isn't it at the end of the day this one there isn't a there is no real objective answer it depends on your bias really i think as always i think the answer lies in the middle there are people that read you know hundreds of papers a week and they go through it and analyze it 10 you know to, yeah. to the point of like that's just fucking way crazy that is like you know yeah autistic spectrum levels of trying to keep up with the research and yeah. then there's people who haven't read a paper for the last 23 years yeah. as well the other end it of the a healthy middle ground yeah yeah who still think you know sticking holes in people's heads is a good way to help reduce headaches and um how you is know it? leeches are the best thing to reduce trigger points and all that sort of shit so you know that as always you don't don't make sure as long as you're not on those end of the spectrums and you're somewhere roughly in the middle you probably ain't going to go too far wrong there's you the need to read a research paper every week? Fuck no. 
does the leech eat the uh, the uh, build up of lactate? Is the question. <laughs> I'm sure there's a research paper out there that will answer that yeah. for you. you. Need to go yes, and find exactly. it. Yeah. Anyway, good. That was a good. We 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 got that. We dived in there, and I. Uh, yeah, uh, I think we've come to a little middle ground on that one. So how important is it really? Um, we don't know. There's two ends of a massive yeah. spectrum. It's important when it's important. Yes. it's I, And again, I'm sure we wield this knowledge badly as well in terms of we one day will berate someone for not being up to date with the research. And then the next day we might say, oh, my God, you don't need to be up with the research. And we see a lot of that kind of flip flopping around. So so there you go. Anyway. Right. We're going to move on. Someone who has answered a new uh, has asked and. Someone knew who has answered a question, asked the question. Put your words in order, Ben. Use your oh. brain and get those words in order. Come on, use your big brain. I need to read more research. Um, and this is from Mikkel Jakobek, I think, which I think sounds like a bit of a Polish name. So Mikkel, Michael, if you're out I there. Say, I was going to say Michael. I know it hasn't got the E in it, but I think it's still a Michael. Okay. And I think Jakubek is probably our Jakubek. What did I say? Jacobet. Close to that. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I actually don't know. So I'm open to cerebral or cerebral or whatever. Um, and he's asked, if you were to hire a physio, how important for you would it to be the courses that one has done? And he's asking this because he says there's so much free knowledge out there, you know. Yeah. Right. Again, another good question. And um, I think... When it comes to trying to employ somebody, it's, it, it can be quite challenging because it's hard to know, you know, what this person that I'm looking to employ does or doesn't know. And I think, you know, particularly when you're just looking at a piece of paper, a CV, you know, it's it's normally a way of screening what somebody does or doesn't know. And this is where I think sometimes these courses allows somebody to very black and white just say i've done this course now whether they actually understand it you know whether they know things around it based on that it's it, i think it's sometimes just it's useful for that sort of screening purpose but then does it actually tell you what knowledge or skills or attributes that person has absolutely no so for employers i think it's more useful you know somebody that's looking to recruit a therapist into a clinic and they've got certain criteria of what treatments they do acupuncture yeah, exactly <laughs> they've got some remember the adverts years ago every it's advert there are still out there mate yeah. essential acupuncture is preferable are, yeah yeah essential skills are a list of essentials and desired uh preferred treatment skills and i still see it in especially in private practice could and you I, I mean, in fact it's, it's almost twisted now because it's not so much the courses that are essential now it's the the postgraduate certification so have you got a master's or have you got or are you working towards okay. a phd or have you got a pg oh, cert really? oh. you know these these things are now very much put on as essential or desired for job applications so it isn't just have you done a weekend course in acupuncture it's are you studying an msc or have you got an msc or a pg cert so could you imagine some clinic owner picks up a, a CV and it says they've been to a Ben Cormack, Adam Meekins and Greg Lehman course? I can imagine that CV would be put down very, very quickly. Undesirables. I don't think so. I, I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends obviously on the clinic. It depends on the, yeah, the mindset the yeah. and the mindset and everything of the employer and all that sort of stuff. So, but you know, 
I'm going to use my experience in the NHS. I know for, you know, to get a job in the NHS, you do have a certain amount of criteria that are classed as essential to get into the next sort of pay band. Yeah. So yeah. I do find that people are doing postgraduate certifications and courses, not so much because of a desire to want to learn something new, just because they want to get paid more. And I totally get that. Yeah. But it's, I like it's, it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a completely the wrong way to try and engage into learning and education. It's, it's something that I see a lot of people just jumping through the hoops of assessment and passing exams just so they can go and work in a, in a new job and get pa- or similar yeah. job to what they're doing, but just get paid more for it. Yeah. And, and I, I just think it's a shame that it's got to that stage. It's all, you know, qualification chasing, certification chasing. That's yeah. what it is. It's not a desire to actually experience or learn something new. Yeah, and I think you see this a lot maybe in the US, for example. You know, people go to courses to get their – and yeah, I, I suppose you see it here as well, everywhere maybe – but to get your continuing education points, you know. And actually, if there was a great course with no continuing education points versus a terrible course with all of the continuing education points, people would go to the one with the education points. Um, yeah. because it gives them a return on their investment. And maybe sometimes knowledge isn't the return on the investment, you know? So um, so how important would the courses be that people have done? What do you think? What, what, would, you, what would you want to see? So, again, my mindset now has moved away from the intervention-type courses, and it's more yeah. about the other type of skills that I'm going to be more interested in to see that, uh, a clinician does or doesn't have so for me you know if somebody's being on communication courses is someone being okay. on you know motivational interviewing have they been yeah. on something where regards to relationship building have they worked on some you know psychological type of courses these type of things i think are going to be much more useful but again it depends on what type of job they're going into yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't really care if a physiotherapist can stick a needle in somebody or press an elbow into a soft tissue or jump up and down on somebody's spine for 30 seconds at a certain velocity because I don't think from my practice and biases that that is the skill of where a good physio or therapist comes in. So my 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 CV searching for courses wouldn't be on how many of those type of courses somebody's done, but have they got any other experiences or certifications in psychology, communication, all these other things? And again, you know, it's a bit like patients. Probably the best clue you're going to get is not going to come from the courses on a CV. It's going to be talking to someone about their philosophy, their experiences, what they think is important, etc. So, so the CV gets you through the door to be able to do yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, but maybe maybe then that you know, if you're going to ask me, then actually the courses that someone's done maybe isn't that important if I think the most important thing is to sit and talk to them and find out a little bit more about who they are and what they let's say. Let's say you're, you're, you've are you advertised for a job and you've got 453 applications. Yeah. Are you going to sit through all 443 people for an hour and get to know them and find out what their philosophy is? Absolutely not. So, yeah. So, personally, yeah. I, I do think it is a way of showing maybe the things that you've done maybe show the philosophy that you have as a clinician. Yeah. And and again, it perhaps shows, you know, um, some commitment, 
to being able to stick with something as well, which might be a useful trait to know. You know, if somebody has managed to sit for six weeks through a fucking MACP course about thoracic rings being out of alignment, you know, that person, perhaps whether they believe it or not, has just got that that ability to be able to commit to something and see it through. So there's another attribute there that could be useful to see on these uh, type of CVs and courses. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Good stuff from Michael Michael. Um, so here we go. You can read the last name then. The the very question at the bottom, Mr. Meekins. Right. Okay. So this one comes from a BCP, a new BCP, and this is Mindart Martins is how I'd say that. How would you say the name? Mind- no, I'm joking. I'd say it Mindart as well, but I'm sure there's Mindart. another... Mindart Martins, which it to me sounds a bit it's Dutch or Belgium. I'm going to go with that yeah. sort of area of the world. Yeah, Martins, Mertens, they're kind of, you know, that. that. But I think that's more Belgian Martins, Mertens than yeah. Dutch. Um, but Flemish, might, rather than, Flemish rather yeah. than Dutch. I'll say, yeah. I might be completely wrong. Um, and what's the question here then, Mr. Meekins? So mind art. Apologies if we've uh, butchered your name. Obviously, correct us later on in the yeah, uh, Facebook group. Yeah, please, please correct us later on. Later on. Um, anyway, so mind arts asked us about he has been struggling to find any good literature around the relationship between muscle tone, that is tightness or hardness, and pain. And he goes on to explain that in general practice, a lot of therapists rely on palpation. Uh, and searching for a causation in the muscle tone, i.e. palpating the upper traps or necks and complaints and saying they're too hard or too stiff. So is there any good literature on palpation or hardness of tissues and causations or correlations to pain? Well, there is a few um, from my reading and diving into this when I was into this manual therapy stuff but it's rather confusing and it's also sometimes a bit contradictory and some of the results can also be counterintuitive uh so the upper traps is quite a common area that's often studied because a lot of people do obviously feel tightness and stiffness in their upper traps when they've got pain and i wish i could remember the name i'm I'm never like greg layman who can just pull the reference off the top of his head but i can't remember the name of this paper but it was a study looking into people with upper traps myalgia and they were um, asked to um, be assessed by having their upper traps palpated with a pressure algometer. So it was able to measure and quantify how much pressure they could tolerate before they said, ouch, and and that stopped. So they asked them to pain map where the epicenter of their pain was, where was it really sore, where was it not so sore. So they quantified the, the severity of the pain in the upper traps, and then they started pushing in. And they actually found in this group that there was an inverse relationship between the severity of the pain and the pressure they could take, which, again, is completely counterintuitive. You'd expect the more severe the pain is, the the more uh, discomfort or the quicker they'd feel pain on pressure. But it actually showed it was the opposite. And the other one that I can remember was a study that was asking people to do exercises, again, with upper trap myalgia, and they quantified how stiff their muscles were before and afterwards, because a lot of people said, the more I do, the stiffer my muscle feels, the more painful it gets. So they wanted to know whether that was actually true. And uh, they found, again, the opposite. They found that after the exercise, the actual muscle was softer compared to before the exercise. So. Yeah, there is there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of conflicting and perhaps contradictory or con- uh, yeah di- uh, type of research that perhaps doesn't always show that 
what you'd expect to find actually happens with palpation. Yeah, uh, mind I ask a little bit here about the the, the the causal relationship. And this is where I think a little bit, th this is where we have it the wrong way around. Because I think often we're trying to say, you have a tight muscle, that is causative of your painful problem. I'm going to assess your traps. I'm going to prod it. I'm going to poke it. Oh, my God, that's tight. That must be causing your pain. Whereas actually the alternative hypothesis is you have pain, everything stiffens up, tightens up. So, you know, there might be a causal relationship, but it could also be that the causal relationship is not the tightness is causing the pain, but the pain is causing the tightness. Um, and I think we see the same with strength, don't we? That, you know, can pain have a causal relationship with strength? Absolutely. But is it more likely that pain decreases strength then strength increases, decreased strength increases pain. Um, and I think that is where research has slowly chugged along and helped us understand that um, and where research is very useful. So from my perspective, um, I think this argument around causation is that I think there is a relationship. I just think the relationship is the opposite way round yeah, to yeah. the one that we consider. Yeah. Um but again, the other thing to also consider here is that um, our ability to determine what is stiff and what isn't stiff is just fucking terrible. So yes. again, there's been there's been a number of papers that says our 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 skills of palpation are pressing into soft tissues and determine whether it is hypertonic or not. Hypertonicity. Yeah. Is it is it got extra tightness in the tissues compared to? The, the other side is just not there at all. Uh, again, a French study, I can't remember the name of the, of the publication, but done done probably 20 years ago now. Very simply designed study done on physiotherapists wanting to know whether physios can identify which side somebody's neck or back pain was just based on their palpation. So they found, I think, over 100 people with unilateral back pain and 100 people with unilateral neck pain. And all they're asked to do, completely blinded, weren't able to ask the patients any questions or examinations. They just had to use palpation and they decide, are you able to palpate hypertonicity, protective guarding spasms in people with unilateral back or neck pain? And basically, they it was about 50% accuracy, which is basically same as guessing. Same, same as the, Yeah. The and then we got the, Say again? Twin costs. Yeah, absolutely. You might as well just done, you might as well just done that, or even just not bothered and just said left, right, left, right to the people yeah. walking into the room and just turned them around again. You'd have probably been just as accurate. Yeah. Um, and then we got the other one that says, you know, even if we do suspect we found something that's hard and and tight and hypertonicity, um, the next person coming in to palpate it won't agree with you. So there's yeah, no reliability yeah. there as well. You know, you've got a lot of the trigger point research that says our ability to find these areas of tight, taut bands in muscles is just terrible. It's such a, a hodgepodge of unreliability. Um, and it's, you know, not based on experience either. One of the papers I like to quote was one that actually had um, old, what's his name, Dr. Simmons of Trevelyan yeah. Simmons. And they couldn't do it, could they? As one of the assessors. These are some of the world's best experts in trigger points trying to find some agreement and reliability that when they're blinded, where one person finds a taut band or trigger point, can another assessor find that? And the answer is yeah. nope. Yeah, so so is the validity very good? Doesn't sound like it. Is the reproducity 
reproductibility any good? Is the reliability any good? And I think, uh, you know, so there's a couple of sides here, isn't there? So one side is, can we do it anyway in terms of the assessment? And and if it's not very valid, it's going to be tough to determine any causation. And then secondary, you know, the fact that we may have causation round the wrong way here, that we don't consider enough that pain may, uh, that these physical factors may be the result of pain and not actually the cause of pain. Yeah. One last thing I just want to talk about on this topic is a bit of um, Tash Stanton's work here as well. Oh, yes. That talks a bit about how people do feel stiff when they have pain. But again, it isn't always related to structural changes. Yeah. She did it in low back pain, I think, didn't she? Yeah, Tash, I think, did. Um, I actually had dinner with Tash the other night, so so that was uh, quite a nice experience. Name drop there, quite a nice experience. What, what a very lovely person, much lovelier than I could ever be. Um, but, yes, her, I think what they did is they built a machine that applied uh, a certain amount of pressure to a spinal segment. So they're trying to actually quantify if you, uh, if you perceive feeling stiff, is actually the vertebrae itself stiff. And they can quantify that by the amount of newtons that it requires to push on the segment to displace the segment. Yeah, and they found that absolutely um, this sense of tightness was a perceptual sense. So if you imagine I've got patient perception, my perception, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a perceptual clusterfuck, isn't it, really, if we're being honest? So, So you can understand why... You know, there's a, a myriad of reasons in there that, you know, palpating a tight bit doesn't help us make much causation. One last thing I do want to say. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know, I know. I said I had one more. But one very <laughs> last thing I want to say here is what we should be very careful of not doing, though, is invalidating a person's perception of tightness in a muscle. Well, going, that, that's, that's not fun. Yeah, but But let me finish. What I don't want therapists to do, anybody listening to this to do, is suddenly start thinking, I heard a podcast that says there's no reliability of any trigger points. There's no reliability of being able to palpate a stiff muscle. And when a patient comes in, she goes, fucking hell, my traps are feeling really stiff and tight today. And you poke them and go, no, it's fucking not. It's all in your head, you knobhead. All right, don't do that. Do not do that. All right. Now we're not saying that at all whatsoever. All right. So I just want to put that point out. Never invalidate somebody's perceptions or feelings of pain or stiffness. I I think the point of understanding it as perceptual means that you could never invalidate it because if it's perceptual, Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's objective or not objective. It's perceptual. Yeah. But then you perception, oh, you're saying it's all in my head. You're saying it's all made up. You're saying I don't actually feel this tightness in my traps. No, I've made this mistake way too much in trying to give too much education around this. And explain. I can be, I can be open and honest with you. 99% of people, don't want to fucking they don't care they don't they don't want to know about the perceptualness and the brain's involvement the bottom, the bottom line is the bottom line here is if someone says it feels stiff it feels stiff yeah that's my point so don't yeah. fucking <laughs> invalidate don't invalidate it by start saying well you do know that this is all just a perception it's not actually <laughs> stiff. you do know that it's all just perception that it is reality in in yeah, some way no don't no don't don't actually <laughs> don't that's fine uh, can i just delete on this if somebody says they're stiff they are stiff all right that's the bottom line that's the bottom line yeah yeah Yeah. 
No, I, I would agree with that. that. That stiffness as a perceptual concept means it's always in the eye of the in the eye of the beholder, yeah. um, which is important. Good. There we go. We've got very animated and emotional there, Mister Meekin. You have to go for a lie down, aren't you, before you burst a blood vessel? I do. I've had a bit of a stressful week, so I do need to chill out a little bit, and I've just yeah. got to go and get, all, go and get on a fucking aeroplane, which is going to do the exact opposite of chill me out. It's going to fucking stress me out even more. Do you find that? I, I get quite agitated at airports. They're very agitating places, aren't they? You know what it is? It's other people, mate. Yeah, okay, fair enough. If I could have an airport all to myself, it'll be <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you're quite there yet, mate. You need to get a bit more Bill Gates before you get that, don't you, where you can fly off on your Learjet. If you got into the world of breathing and maybe trigger points. You know, trigger points, I think you might get somewhere close to that. Evidence-based stuff, not so much. Yeah, afraid so. That's where the interventions of the modalities do earn a better living, that's for sure. They are. All right, people. Anyway, hope you've enjoyed this month's Thoughtful Thursday. As always, um, if you are not a BCP member and you are listening to us on the podcast, uh, remember you can come and join the BCP for a very <clears throat> small amount, a monthly subscription, no contracts, no commitments, and you can listen to all of our past Thoughtful Thursdays, as well as go through all of our topics on various different musculoskeletal pathologies, where we take overviews of the anatomy, pathophysiology, how to assess it, how to treat it, get our expert guests on to give us their views and opinions. We do research reviews. We give you rehab ideas as well. So yeah. I say a stack load of content for a very low uh, monthly fee with no contracts or commitments. So say if you're not a member of the BCP yet, why not? Come and check us out. You got nothing to lose except twelve pound bargain, I'd say. Yeah, and pro rata, you're going to get at least. So I reckon you'd lose about eight quid. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So, like for like, as I say, I think we offer some of the best quality information out there at the lowest cost as well. So come check out the Better Clinician Project. You won't regret it. I'm sure ninety percent certainty that you won't regret it. All right, people, until next time, we'll catch you on another Thoughtful Thursday. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the BCP podcast. If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.